Welcome back to Tower Talks, your conversational podcast from Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. We're connecting you to the cathedral from afar, the docents, volunteers, staff, and artists who have each contributed to making the cathedral such a special place to be. For this week's episode, I had the incredible pleasure of talking to Dean Randy Hollerith, arguably the most well-known member of the cathedral staff and certainly one of the most prominent voices of the cathedral in its current era. Randy has the immense task of leading the cathedral both spiritually and institutionally, and many of us are familiar with him acting in his official capacity, in the pulpit or in interviews. In this case, though, I had the chance to speak to him about his own life, his own path to the cathedral, and the things he loves about his work, all the things that make him a great colleague and friend as well as a great dean. So, without further ado, here's Dean Randy Hollerith on Tower Talks. Hey, there you are. How hey, are you? no problem. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So <laughs> the way that I normally start these interviews, which seems a little silly given who you are, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is if you could introduce yourself for the folks at home, who you are, uh, what you do, and where you're from. Oh, perfect. So <laughs> my name is Randy Hollerith, and I'm blessed to be the, the dean of Washington National Cathedral, which means in layman's terms that I'm the, uh, the priest who's in charge of the cathedral or the operations of the cathedral. Uh, I uh, grew up here in the metro area. I'm from Alexandria, Virginia. So what was your path to becoming the dean? I, in full disclosure, I grew up non-religious and then became a Quaker as an adult. So I fully do not understand <laughs> what, what the process to becoming a dean of an Episcopal church would be. Um, sure. So could you explain that path for me a little bit? Yeah, you know, um, different denominations have different approaches to how clergy change around in their positions. And some denominations, like the Roman Catholic Church, are very hierarchical, where bishops will place clergy in various places, and other church bodies are much less, uh, much less so. So in the Episcopal Church, uh, becoming the dean or becoming the priest in charge of a parish is, simp- is really a matter of, of being amongst a, a group of candidates, interviewing for the position in the exact same sort of way that so folks in the secular world would interview for a job. So um, in, again, in layman's terms, if, if you're a rector in an Episcopal Church, you're the priest in charge of a, of a church. And I had been the rector of a church in Richmond, Virginia for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And I was approached about the position of dean at the cathedral. And at first, I really wasn't interested because I was so happy where I was. I loved my church community. It was St. James's Episcopal Church. It's a, Richmond's a great town and a growing town. And, um, you know, we'd raised our children there. And, you know, when you've served a place for that long, you've watched a generation grow up, you know, so I was beginning to do weddings for some of the kids who had, you know, that I had helped baptize or been there when they were confirmed. So I I had a deep um, and loving connection to the place, but uh, I was finally convinced to let my name stand, in other words, to have my name in the mix for the position, when several people in my life sort of unconnected from one another, and all over the country, different parts of the country, Um, reached out to me and said, you know, you really ought to look at this. You really ought to think about this. We think you have great gifts for this. And I said to myself, finally, after the third person said something, I said, well, you know, if you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working, then I ought to pay attention to this. So I let my name stand and uh, 
as I went through the process, uh, lo and behold, I sort of, I mean, the process takes months. I mean, there's all kinds of stages to an interview process for a job like this. But as I went through the process, I discovered that, wow, I really felt called to it. And I really felt like the gifts I had to offer um, were the right gifts for the cathedral for this season in its life. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to hear you talk about it both in the sense of a calling, like it was part of the spiritual sort of calling of what you were doing, but also like the practical reality of like, this is a job that I have to consider. <laughs> like there are pros and cons to this. Do I want to do this? I don't know that people recognize that those two things coexist so much for something like this. Absolutely. There is a uh... You know, there are all kinds of sort of professional questions that one has to consider. But at the same time, what's most important or equally as important is a sense of that you're being called to use your gifts in this way, right? I mean, and that was really a, and so the calling and for me, I think it's different was it, it wasn't a sense of I needed to leave St. James's and do something new. I was really happy at St. James's. It was really the sense that I was being pulled into this new place and into this new challenge. And it was quite frankly, it was not only as exciting, but it was terrifying, right? I mean, terrifying to think about taking on that role, but having this deep sense that that's, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I've got to, I got to trust in that. In Quaker speak, we would call that discernment. And then my really wonderful Quaker elder friend, Debbie, would point to the fact that sometimes spirit tells you something that you really are not ready for. And it's really annoying. <laughs> Oh, totally. I think the spirit often tells us things we're not ready for. And quite Mm -hmm. frankly, we smack her in the face and make her turn away for a while. And she keeps coming back, bugging us with it, right? Until, until we get it right. And the word discern, it says exactly the word that we would use as well in the Episcopal church is that there was a a lot of discernment, but it was a, um, I'm so glad we did it. I mean, I miss all our friends in, in Richmond and those relationships still exist, but we love being at the cathedral. It's an incredible institution to serve. It's a lot of work. I think I'm working the hardest I've ever worked in my life, but it's so exciting and there's so many possibilities and opportunities and I've been stretched. You know, I can feel the spirit in the midst of this work stretching me in new ways to, um, to grow. And at 57, that's really great. You know, I love that. So I know that you and your family have some longstanding connections to the cathedral, although I don't really know the specifics of what they are. They're sort of mentioned in your bio, which I did 100% read in preparation for this interview. (laughs) Could you speak a little bit about how you were connected to the cathedral before you became the dean? Sure. Yeah. So it's really kind of interesting. I mean, well, for one thing, I never imagined I would be at the National Cathedral. I mean, just never. I mean, you know, you, I I guess lots of, I, I at times have daydreams about X job or Y job and I thought about other jobs within the church, but I never dreamed I'd be here. And, and I say that because my family has a connection with the place. My mother's side is all from Virginia. They're all Virginians. And my father's side are all Washingtonians. And so um, I grew up living across the bridge in Alexandria, but I had a fair amount of family who, was here in the, who lived here in the district. And I had three maiden aunts, great aunts, who never married and they lived on 29th Street in Georgetown their entire lives from the day the house was built in like 1902 until the day they died in their 90s. Mm-hmm. They were all living in that house. And uh, so we would spend a lot of time in D.C. with them. And two of the three of them were huge supporters of the cathedral. At least one of them was on the flower guild here of the cathedral. Flower arranging and artistic endeavors were her passion. 
Um, their mother, so it'd be my great-grandmother, had actually been present for the laying of the cornerstone of the cathedral, yeah, with, with Theodore Roosevelt. And I didn't even know that fact until I'd already become the dean and my brother told me that. I mean, that, that was not something that was in my family lore. But I did grow up um, because of my aunt's love of the cathedral. And my mother and my grandparents all supported the NCA and the building of the cathedral. So I grew up coming to the cathedral as a kid. And I would come and watch the stonemasons work. And um, I would come and run around. And I always loved the place. I loved the top of this hill. I loved the beauty of the cathedral, but never in all that time did I ever think I'd ever actually work here, right? I just thought it would be some place that I would love and enjoy. So it's really special to me that I get a chance to serve an institution that so many people in my family um, loved and were committed to. Did you know from a young age that you wanted to go into a religious life or was that something that you came to more as an adult? Like, and how did that sort of inform that path? You know, that's a great question. My, uh, my brother is a clergy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a retired bishop. Uh, he's nine years older than I am, so he's just recently retired. And we have both talked about how did we end up in the clergy? How did that happen? I mean, we grew up in a very uh, normal middle-class family in Alexandria. We both went to St. Stephen's High School, which is now St. Stephen's St. Agnes um, School. It's a great school. But we, and you know, we were we were members of Christ Church in Old Town. It's where we went to church as kids, but we weren't super religious family. I mean, you know, we said a blessing before dinner and um, we got dragged by our ears to go to church. And we sat in the very back pew of the church for my entire life, but we weren't super religious. And so we both kind of contemplated, how did we end up, you know, where we are? We're really glad we did, but the path was not so, um, it's not clear as you look back. We both have said that, um, Uh, Early on, we were really fortunate, both of us were very fortunate to have clergy in our lives, whether they were clergy in our church or clergy as chaplains in our school, who were really healthy and really authentic and dynamic and um, easy to talk to and very real. And um, from a very early age, I think we were both attracted to those kinds of people, folks who were you know, highly educated and yet very open and whose faith was really important to them, but they weren't dogmatic. And we were both really blessed that we had several of those people in our lives. And I was a really normal kid in high school and, you know, playing football and smoking cigarettes and chasing girls and, you know, doing all the sort of, you know, all the sort of stuff in the 80s that we did and um, in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, but I was also at those in those early age at that stage. I was reading Sartre and Camus and Kierkegaard. Now I didn't understand hardly anything of what I was reading. Right? I mean, I, you know, I just scratched the surface. But I was fascinated by questions of what is the ultimate meaning of life? What is reality? Um, uh, what can we count on? What is worth giving one's life to? You know, those those sorts of questions were just really powerful for me. So I, I, um, I knew that God was moving in my life and that something was moving in my life. And I wanted to explore that further, but I didn't really have a sense that I was supposed to be, you know, a priest. And so when I went to, I went to Denison University out in Ohio for my undergraduate work, I could play football out there. And uh, I was also a philosophy major and a religion major. I was a double major. And so I really spent those years sort of exploring that piece And I kept telling myself when I got all this religious nonsense out of my head that philosophy was the best major for law school and I would just go on to law school and 
you know, get a real job. But by my senior year in college, I really kind of had a sense that I was being called to the priesthood. And my brother had uh, started that process as well, even though he was significantly older than I, I am. And uh, I decided, this is more detail than you want, but I decided at the end of college, I applied for Yale Divinity School. And then I um, decided, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to test this one more time. So I deferred my acceptance to Yale, and I spent the next year in Arlington, Virginia, working in a, an acute care psychiatric hospital for teenagers. And I would spend 10, 12 hours a day in the hospital for a year working with some very, 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 very sick teenagers, God bless them. Um, it was a really powerful and wonderful experience. I was trying to see whether I was really being called to sort of clinical psychology or or, perhaps, or whether it really was the ministry. At the end of that year, I had an incredible experience, and I was blessed to be there, but I really knew that by the end of that year that seminary was the place for me. It's always fascinating to me to see or sort of understand the sort of threads of how people's lives impact the choices that they make and how the sort of weird detours we think of them as aren't detours at all. They're part of the process. They're part of that road to get to where you're at. And I'm sure that work so significantly impacted the way that you interacted in the seminary and then onward into serving communities. Like, how could it not? Yeah, absolutely. And what you find is that, um, I think this is essential deep truth of the Christian faith, that, that often the things that we suffer through or struggle with, on the other side of those sufferings and those struggles become agents of grace that enrich and empower and make the work that we do better than we ever imagined, right? Mm-hmm. And I certainly found that in my, in my own life, absolutely. So looping back to the cathedral a little bit, speaking of sort of suffering through and struggles, the cathedral has not been without its challenges over time. And, you know, those are national challenges, those are international challenges, and those are also institutional challenges. And that's what's going on right now, right? Like that's, that's why we're here. What role do you think the cathedral serves in moments of struggle or challenge for this country and this community? And what is unique about what we have to offer people? That's a great question. I think, you know, the cathedral... The cathedral at its best, and the cathedral when it's doing what it's been created to do, is a beacon of hope and a beacon of, of what, I, what I term as God's reconciling love in the world, you know, and, and that it stands for that, that hope and it stands for that love, which means it also stands for um, working towards justice and reconciliation and understanding. And because we're the National Cathedral, we, we have the platform that other churches don't necessarily cannot necessarily access. And because we're at this intersection sort of in Washington, D.C. of the sacred and the civic, we also have a platform where we can uh, we can bring people together or have some influence over um, some of these issues as we move forward. And, you know, whether we're, whether the cathedral's doing really well financially and we're growing and expanding or whether we're trying to figure out how to make our way through a pandemic, what we're always trying to do to focus on that core work of how we live out the, the reconciling love of Jesus Christ in the world, and how we be that agent of hope and that agent of that positive voice in the culture. Mm-hmm. And I think where what the cathedral can do, and what I hope you know things like this podcast can do, and things like that, is reach people regardless of where they're at and meet people where they're at. And that has always been something that very much appealed to me, particularly as somebody who grew up non-religious, frankly, not particularly interested in a religious life necessarily in the sense of, you know, the really structured religious order. Quakers are not about structure. (laughs) Exactly. That's why I love Quakers, quite frankly. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. The, but what is great about the cathedral is that it meets you where you're at, right? Like it, you walk in the door and it's okay, no matter 
who you are, where you're coming from. Frankly, you don't have to believe in anything if you don't want to, but we're here for you and we're offering something for you to grab onto. Oh, and I think that is so important, especially, I mean, the cathedral is able to live into that in ways that a church, you know, a parish community, a local church can't in some ways, right? I mean, it's harder to do that, but because we're this big institution, but it's so important. It is so important. I I know deep in my heart, if there's one truth I know, is that God is at work in every person's life. And I think that part of our role is simply to invite people in whatever way is most resonant with for them to get a glimpse of the holy, a glimpse of the of the profound, of the mysterious, of that, I like to say, the deep mystery that lies at the heart of all things, right? And to invite them in in their own way, and, and certainly to invite them into the way that we proclaim, right? But at the same time, to be open and accepting of and really welcoming of their own journeys, because God is so at work in each of their journeys. And um, if we can help people see that in, in any way, you know, whether they end up being an Episcopalian or a Buddhist or, a, you know, whatever, doesn't matter. It's that, you know, it's, it's an awakening of God in their lives. And that's, that's what I think the purpose of life is. If you ask me, I think the purpose of life is about discovering our deep connection to this uh, to this awesome creator who has given us so many gifts, because I think that's where we find life at its richest. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love the seeing deeper things that we do and, you know, offering so many musical offerings at the cathedral, because I think the holy is often transmitted through beauty, through art, and uh, whether visual arts or the musical arts. And so I, I want us to do as much of that as we possibly can. That's actually a great segue into my next question for you, which was, um, I was going to ask you what some of your favorite things that either are in the cathedral or that the cathedral does are, like some of the things that you just love that we do and offer. Well, one of the, like I said, some one of the things that the, some of my favorite things that the cathedral does, I mean, I could give a whole list of stuff that the cathedral does that I love, but I love its openness or I love this spirit of openness that we are so hard at work making sure people understand because I see it all the time when people come into that space from some religious tradition or no religious tradition or they're spiritually curious or they're just interested in art but I see the effect that the space has on people and how it is a real invitation to to see life differently or to see things in new ways and I I love the openness of the cathedral to be able to be a vehicle for people that way. Mm-hmm. Now, in the building, gosh, I have so many things I love in that building. I think one of my very favorite spaces is the children's chapel. I love the beauty of that children's chapel. It's, it's the only chapel in the cathedral where the ceiling is carved in full relief. You get the beautiful carving, not just on the walls, but on the ceiling as well. The diminutive stature of everything in there, from the chairs to everything that is smaller, my favorite part of that entire space are the, is the, um, the gate, the gate to the children's chapel, because all of the, all the ironwork is from a distance is carved to look like flowers and stamens in those flowers on this beautiful wrought iron gate. But as you get closer, you see that the artist carved not just flowers and stamens, but carved playful faces and figures in each of those flowers. And um, it's a detail that you can easily miss, but I love the amount of effort and energy and um, expertise and artistry that went into those 
tiny details and yet and how joyful they can be when you kind of experience them. Plus, I love the fact that there is a tunnel from behind my house down here. I live in the in the dean's house, and there's a tunnel from behind my house that runs under the street, up through the crypt of the cathedral, and pops out of that door in Children's Chapel. I did not know that. (laughs) So I have my own secret entrance, which is kind of fun. I think you should use that to great surprise at some point. I think you should find a way to to make some kind of grand entrance or perhaps add to the lore of the cathedral as a haunted entity and just, you know, do with that what you will. (laughs) Well, we, I did use it. um, um, I love to take people, get a a kick going on that, you know, taking the tour, going through the tunnel. But um, Melissa last year was teaching um, the ninth grade at St. Albans for a semester. And, um, she promised her ninth grade class at the end of the semester that we could take that trip, that, you know, that we could explore some of the fun things of the cathedral. So what I had failed to do, unfortunately, was to alert the docents that we were doing this. So <laughs> all of a sudden on a one Friday, it was a Friday afternoon, we had brought all the kids over to our house, and there were about 70 of them or 80 of them, and uh, then we took them through the tunnel. As what I didn't had forgotten was, you know, to go through the tunnel and to go up the stairs, you got to go single file. So there's 70 or 80 ninth graders and the two of us. And uh, what I failed to tell, I didn't tell the docents or anyone that we were doing this. It just never, it just didn't cross my mind that it should have. So all of a sudden on a nice quiet day as they're leading tours, 80 ninth graders pop out of this door in the midst of the children's chapel, you know, about as loud as they could possibly be. Um, it was, you had to laugh. It was really pretty funny, but I think it uh, quite frankly freaked out <laughs> a number of folks. Hopefully our docent core is very sort of kind and flexible a lot of the time, but I'm sure they were like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, they were, they were very sweet to me about it, but I came out going, oops, I, I should have thought this through a little better. Yeah, just, you know, an email <laughs> is usually helpful. That's hilarious. I love that. So, so my other favorite—I have another my other favorite spot that I love to take people to, and and I encourage everybody if they haven't done uh, one of those tours that gets you up into the high places, they should do it because it's really, really fun and wonderful. But one of my favorite spots is that tiny little balcony right at the cusp, right at the edge of the rose window. You know, I love being able to stand up there and look out over the entire nave because you get a view of the cathedral that you can't get anywhere else. And uh, I will sit up there sometimes for 30 minutes or so and say some prayers and watch the docents at work and watch the groups coming through the cathedral, seeing people kneeling in prayer in the chapels and just just um, marveling at how many different kinds of people are there for so many different kinds of reasons, you know, but but the joy of of being able to share that space with them. Speaking of joy, what are some of your most joyous memories of the cathedral? Like, do you have any favorite stories of working there or, you know, even before that, just sort of being part of the cathedral community that you can share? Well, my, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So my, my first memory of the cathedral is a very precious memory to me. I was a tiny little boy and I don't remember what time of year it was, whether it was probably Christmas Eve or it was Easter Sunday, I don't know, one of those days. But my family brought me to the cathedral for the service. And of course, everything was full. I mean, the nave wasn't even completed then, but the space that was there was full. So we were stuck up in the South Balcony. And I can remember sitting up in that South Balcony, um, just in awe of the beauty of the space. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't get that there was liturgy or anything else but just how cool the space was. And 
that memory has always stuck for me as a little tiny boy, um, which is precious to me as I think back on it now. Some memories uh, that I love since I've been here at the cathedral are so many that I really can't share because they're really private moments that I've had with people who are visiting the cathedral on any given Sunday or during the week who come up to me and they want to talk or they want to share something about themselves, you know, that's really intimate and special. And I feel so honored to have those people want to do that. But uh, beyond that, my f- <laughs> one of my favorite memories has been doing the Christmas pageants. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when we do the pageant at the cathedral, we invite the entire neighborhood and we tell all the kids that, you know, wherever you come from, if you come in the door and you want to be in the pageant, you get to be in the pageant. And, uh, you know, having 1,600 kids in the cathedral trying to do a Christmas pageant is ridiculous and hysterical and wonderful, you know. And um, the years we've been doing that, just watching those faces, watching what I call the joyful chaos unfolding in that room is the most joyful thing that I that I know. And the other thing that I really love, and it moves me to tears every year, is when we get together and we celebrate with our volunteers. Mm-hmm. You know, for those who are listening who may not know, it takes a, it's about a thousand volunteers that are needed at the cathedral to make the place function. And we're very blessed to have volunteers who've served anywhere from five months to 60 years. And every year we bring together those who are celebrating five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. And we bring them together and just have a service where we sort of honor them and thank them and, and share them a five-year pin to see the number of people who have been volunteering their 25, 35, 45, 55 years they have given that place. That's the great riches of the cathedral, um, are the gifts of those people over and over and over and over again. And so I'm always really touched to be a part of that service. Absolutely. I think one of the primary goals of this podcast in particular is to give voice to a lot of those people and really call out how incredibly deep and like wonderful that community is. The people who make the cathedral happen, right? Like that's so much of what makes the cathedral a special place is it's a beautiful building and no one's going to argue that it's a beautiful building, but the people are what brings the spirit of that space alive for me. Every day I meet somebody or I talk to somebody and it's just, that's the best part of my day is talking to somebody, hanging out with, you know, whoever it is. Ken brings in a pie and I'm just happy as, you know, happy as that (laughs) pie or whatever it is. There's just so much joy and love there that, yeah, I'm very happy that we have this opportunity to sort of talk to people and get to know them and honor them in the way that they deserve because most of them have given basically their whole lives to the cathedral and that's a really incredible gift. It's really true and you know what our faith is our the Christian faith is a very incarnational faith right I mean it's it's all about people encountering people it's it's God becoming a human being and encountering people so it's people encountering people and that building can be as beautiful and awe-inspiring as as you want to make it but without the beating heart of these really wonderful human beings who incarnate, you know, who literally incarnate something holy and wonderful in, in their hospitality and in their expertise and in their willingness to share of themselves to all these people who come in the building, that's what makes the place magical and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So this is a little bit of a segue, um, but earlier you spoke a little bit about really valuing the private conversations you have with people and the one-on-one connections you're able to make with people. But the reality of the situation is that you also represent the cathedral on the public stage, on the national stage. How do you sort of navigate and manage the pressure that comes with being both a person, Randy, who is you know your own 
just you have your own thoughts, opinions, existence, and being the representative of a space that has such a diverse set of perspectives contained within it. Mm. Um, and that sort of like, how do you, how do you balance those things? Well, that's a, that's wild. That's a really great question. I'm not sure I've completely figured all that out yet. Right. In some ways. I mean, that's a really hard one. One thing I know is that, uh, everything I do publicly in my role as the Dean, I do with fear and trembling in the sense that I'm, I try to be very conscious of the role that I play and the deeper responsibility I have. So I never see the pulpit as my bully pulpit, or I never see an interview or something I write as an opportunity for me to somehow strut my ego, right? Uh, I try to, I'm not not sure I'm always successful at it, but I try to make sure that when I'm um, playing, when I'm in this role, that I'm first and foremost trying to uh, speak in ways that are based in the gospel, you know, that are based in this good news of this reconciling love of God and this hope, all of, the, all of that. So whereas I think the gospel is, is deeply political, I think it has political implications for how we treat one another and how we organize ourselves as a society and what we value as a society, I try very hard to try to separate out what's what's politically uh, what's politically important that we proclaim as as proclaimers of the gospel and what's partisan because what we're not is partisan we try and I try not to be although I may have very strong personal beliefs one way or another that's where I, that's one of the areas especially in Washington DC when everything's political all the time right I try very hard not to be partisan because I think I think the role of the church uh, and the role of the cathedral is as a bridge builder, especially during this time in which we live. You know, we are trying to build bridges between between folks because we, we're living in a culture now where ideology dominates everything as opposed to interpersonal relationships. And, you know, we see families that are pulling apart or they can't talk to each other about politics because their ideologies are so different. You know, we're seeing these intense cultural divides and if we're gonna make our way through this time, we've got to be able to, to lift up the innate and inherent value of each other, regardless of our ideologies. So I see that as one of the primary roles that I have when I'm speaking for the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And I really value that. I mean, I think you're speaking to something that is very present in everyone's life in a very profound way, particularly right now. And there is this, for me anyway, I've always, the, the old adage of the personal is political, right? So the people's personal experiences are so deeply tied to how they experience the world, both politically and sort of socially. So trying to encapsulate everyone is sort of an enormous and impossible task. Yeah, it <laughs> um, is. But it's the work, like that's the work we do, is we are a place for all people. And what does that mean? And what does that play out in, in real life? Um, and I think that's a fascinatingly complicated and unanswerable question. <laughs> when I preach, a, you know, back in the times when we had folks you know, actually in the cathedral, and when I would preach a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, folks would, some folks would come out and say, you know, I just cannot believe you said that. That was way too liberal, political, blah, blah, blah. You know, you shouldn't have said that. And then... You know, I'll keep shaking hands with folks and someone will come, uh, come out, you know, 10 or 12 people later and say, wow, that was 
that was so, you just didn't take that far enough. You were much too conservative in what you said there. And I figured when I get both those comments, then I know I'm probably hitting it just right somewhere along the way. <laughs> what other questions did I have for you? A question that I'm asking a lot of people, but I, I've been getting very different answers from everybody, which I really love, is what you're most looking forward to when we're able to reopen the cathedral. Like what's the first thing that you're like, this is where I'm going, or this is what I'm doing, or this is the place that I'm most excited to be in again when we reopen those doors? Yeah, well, I have to answer it sort of a little differently because I'm over there all the time, right? I mean, I'm in the building a lot because we're, you know, we're filming or we're doing live broadcasts or whatever. And since I live here, I mean, like it's just, you know, it's, it's not even 100 yards away. So there's nothing about the building per se that I'm really excited about when we reopen. What I'm really excited about when we reopen is to see and to be with that great, mess of humanity that comes and claims that cathedral as their community. You know, all these different people, all these different life stories, all these different places they come from, and they're all the cathedral family. And I really miss that cathedral family. We all do. I miss I miss the hugs on Sunday morning. I miss the handshaking. I miss the stories, the laughter. Uh, you know, I miss... I miss the way, watching the way we care for one another and the coffee hours. The um, I just miss all of that human, that deep human interaction that sometimes I just stand back and marvel at on any given Sunday in that space. That's what I'm really longing for. That's actually not that different of an answer from a lot of people because most people are like, I just really miss my friends, <laughs> you know? So that that is actually quite in line with what other people are saying. And I think everyone, a lot of people are missing that human connection right now because as much as we try to connect over Zoom or FaceTime or whatever it is, there's something profound about being in, in community and in connection with another person in a space. And I think how we do that is going to be different. This is, this is a new normal. We're moving towards a new normal. But I hope that we are able to recapture that sense of connectedness and community in whatever way we need to to be safe but while still being together if that makes sense like balancing that i think is going to be the next step of the work yeah i think i think when we come out the other side of this it'll be normal plus you know in some way the new normal will be of course we'll gather together as community but people will also be much more comfortable and perhaps much more willing to gather digitally than they used to be you know and um, that's great too so what I'm looking forward to is being able to leverage both, you know, being together in person as community and finding ways to be the very best digital cathedral that we know how to be. Absolutely. And that goes back to the reach that we have and the resources that we have and the ways in which we can steward those resources to be available. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, before you go, if you would like, I have a very cute colleague who I would like to introduce you to. Her name is, oh, Ger Her name is Geraldine Ferraro. <laughs> Look at her. Yep. She looks comfortable. Yep, that's her blanket. It used to be my blanket, but now it's her blanket. So. Uh, <laughs> She's been a silent I, listener to this whole interview, which is kind of fun. I'm downstairs in my study, mm -hmm. and um, you know, normally a lady goes to work with me every day, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, the kitchen is upstairs. Mm -hmm. So I have been abandoned down here in my study because she. She just wants to hang out near the food all day. So I've been calling her a traitor. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I think she's a brilliant dog. <laughs> I love Lady. Lady is a smart and capable creature who understands where her priorities are, frankly. <laughs> totally. Totally. There's nothing down here. She'd much rather be where things smell good than get a scratch from me. So. Right. I mean, I get it. <laughs> I do too. I do too. I get it completely. Yeah. 
So, all right. I think that's everything. And I don't want to go too far over time. And I thank you again so much. Um, I'm looking, really looking forward to this episode and putting it together and putting it out there for people to listen to. And I hope the family is safe and well. And um, good. This has been really lovely. Um, I'm looking forward to putting it together. And then I'm looking forward to reconnecting when this thing is past us and we can actually see each other in person again. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Thank you so much. You take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Randy for participating in this week's episode, and as always, thank you to you for listening. As Randy mentioned, we hope to serve you in any way we can, and that includes offering a veritable treasure trove of online content through our website, www.cathedral.org. Please join us there for virtual tours, worship services, downloadable activities, and more while the cathedral is closed and beyond. We hope you continue to be safe and well, and we'll be back next week on Tower Talks. Thank you.